Hey everyone, Mallory here. I'm thrilled to announce a new mini-series that we're dropping on the Higher Ebb Pulse called A Guide to Graduate Marketing in 2024, a special four-part series on how to increase collaboration between marketing and enrollment management functions on college and university campuses, hosted by Shane Beglini, who leads marketing at Muhlenberg College. Over the next four weeks, join Shane as he sits down with higher ed leaders and industry experts to discuss what the graduate student journey in 2024 looks like, what grad students actually want out of their campus experience, the pressure recruiters have to fill butts and seats as the undergraduate enrollment cliff approaches, and so much more. All right, friends, without further ado, get ready to meet your host, Shane Beglini. Hello, and thanks for joining me for the fourth and final episode of A Guide to Graduate Marketing in 2024. Today is a really special episode as I'm joined by a panel of four veteran graduate marketing professionals ranging from admissions and enrollment management to marketing and digital strategy to agency and partner perspectives. Our guests today are Kitty Payne, Director of Graduate Admissions at Kutztown University, Marcus Hanscom, Director of Enrollment Marketing at DD Agency, Brett DeMarzo, Director of Graduate Enrollment Digital Strategy at Boston College, and Keith Ramsdell, Vice President for Enrollment Management and Marketing at Ashland University. Kitty, Marcus, Brett, Keith are all very involved with NAGAP and other efforts to connect graduate professionals and are all close friends. So I'm really going to be excited about this conversation. So, so I've never everybody. met these people. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining me, everybody. And we want to give the folks listening an overview of, of the graduate enrollment space, both past, present, and future. Um, and so I want to start off by taking a look back from COVID because Things have changed quite a bit uh, in our industry, and I'm curious to know from your perspectives, what have, have been some of the biggest changes you've seen uh, in the GEM space, specifically around student expectations, and, and how are your institutions uh, addressing these changes? And, and Kitty, we'll start with you. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, overall, we've seen the student demographics trending younger, and their undergrad experiences set their expectations into motion. We tried to meet them where they're they are academically and personally, and that comes in different forms. So what I'm hearing in this region, I'm in Pennsylvania, is that students want more face-to-face -face interactions. They're kind of tired of being behind a camera for most of their learning and community building. Um, so we're trying to make meaningful connections with them. And that indicates to us that while remote everything was fine when everybody had to be that way, colleges and universities need to keep striking that balance and bring back the face-to-face -face programming and activity. That's interesting to hear that you're referring to what we all commonly call Zoom fatigue among, among grad students. Uh, I'm curious to hear from Keith and Brett, are you experiencing that at your institutions as well? Absolutely. I mean, if you're, if you're thinking specifically about the, the Zoom fatigue aspect, I think that's absolutely true. I think that, you know, even as we were coming out of COVID uh, 21, 22, I think in those years, we started to see a decline in the, the level of participation in online recruitment events and those types of things and more of a desire to be uh, back face to face pretty quickly. And I think after that point, it just dropped off entirely. I, I think that there's very little room for recruitment uh, in that regard. And um, even classes, I think that there's a, a much higher uh, desire for face-to-face -face, or at the very least hybrid uh, experiences at the graduate level now. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Keith. And, and I think what COVID did in a way was kind of uh, force students to just reevaluate what their priorities were in, in a variety of different ways. And the experience that they had during that time, whether it was positive, whether it was negative, it just, I think, readjusted um, what their expectations are of, of graduate education. Uh, so it, it's an interesting kind of trend going forward and seeing how schools are going to adapt to that. And, and what do you think some of the pain points are, uh, Brett, Keith, and Kitty, for, for graduate students specifically in, in the online format? Is it, is it course design? Is it, is it how... We're interacting with with our peers in those in those situations. I'm, I'm curious to hear the pain points of students that you're hearing. I would say um, that again, the lack of community. So they feel as though they're kind of going through the motions of you know being in a situation online, but not really having that that external conversation. 
getting to know people, feeling that connectedness. Um, and so they're just, they're wondering what they're getting, what they're paying. Yeah, I would agree with that completely, Kitty. I, I When I started in graduate enrollment uh, a number of years ago, we used the cohort model exclusively. And that whole design was around community. It was around building a sense of belonging uh, among the students. And now we've tried in graduate enrollment over the years to move that same sense to an online format, and it simply doesn't work. And, and, and I think the tension in graduate enrollment, and this is what I keep going back to, Shane, is, you know, we talk about student services, that's one thing, but the part of the issue is, is that there's less demand for a lot of our programs. There's less demand in the workforce. And so students are trying to find um, a more of a reason to even move toward graduate education. And that community was one of the things that we were able to once point them to and say, look, you can do this together. You can make this happen. And now that sense of community and belonging is being challenged in the online space. And it's it's difficult to sell that. And I think the biggest pain point that everybody experienced, particularly in during COVID, was you know to have that engagement and to have that interaction and to make it a meaningful experience in the online online environment. You have to be intentional about it, and I think you know none of us were intentional during COVID, right? We we had to 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 deal with the situation and we had to uh, adapt to it as best we could. Um, but the intentionality of that interaction and engagement, I think um, nobody had an opportunity to do that. So now that we're past that point, I think schools have to be very aware that engaging in the online space needs to be an intentional um, uh, project. And, and you have to think about that community building within that space and the environment. You know, one thing that I think, especially out of COVID, where you had a lot of schools that, uh, particularly on the graduate side, that grad was kind of an afterthought, you know, kind of working on its own over here. And if you're predominantly undergrad, you were focusing your resources and efforts and innovation there. But now schools that weren't really doing a lot of digital marketing were forced to in COVID. So now all of these schools, just this deluge of schools now in the online space, paid digital, everybody thinks like my only way to get in front of students is to be doing paid search ads and paid social. And so students are getting inundated with that stuff. And then schools were forced to build resources on their own websites, whether it be chatbots, uh, deeper, even value-based information on their sites about their programs telling more stories, those types of things, because there's so much more stealth behavior and COVID just magnified that. So now all these students are doing all their searching online independent of us. So it's actually increased the amount of students we're seeing as stealth applicants that have never interacted. So we have to assume that they were doing a lot more independent kind of searching on their own. And another kind of byproduct of that is students became more discerning with their time, which what we've seen generally is that that's meant a lower uh, attendance at campus-based events. And that's been a problem for a lot of people that have traditionally been in grad. I was in grad enrollment for 17 years. I mean, it's we were always like, get students on campus because we knew we could close, so to speak, right? We knew once we sold that experience, they met the people, that it was easy to get them recruited. But now students are, are far more discerning about when they do that. So they're moving that activity far later in the funnel than they used to. So they're only coming in many cases at accepted student day, for example, they want to know they're in and they have that option. Okay, now I'm going to go see campus, not to mention the investment it takes to actually travel to a campus in many cases, especially at the master's level where you're not getting, you know, complimentary travel to a campus and interviewing and all of that. So students have to be more discerning about that. And we have to be willing to pivot and understand that a lot of the information searching is happening far before that without interacting with us. And that's a big shift for a lot of people who are used to that interaction and knowing that that's the way to hook a student. Yeah. So it sounds to me like there's a, we're trying to strike a balance between convenience and also students wanting, you know, interpersonal connection and interaction with peers. And so Marcus, if I could follow up with you on the event piece of things, you're, you've recently transitioned from, you know, the on-campus side to the agency side of things. So is there any ways that you're working with clients and schools to kind of address that, that you, you talked about stealth applicants and people inquiring less and being less willing to raise their hand? How, how are you working with folks uh, across the industry? 
Well, in particular, I, I mentioned value. Um, that's really where students are looking for quality information that's about finding right fit opportunities. And they're not just going to fish everywhere, but at the same time, when they're going, many students are searching without a brand or institution in mind. So you have to really position yourself to answer the questions that they have and do it in a way that really articulates value. And then students see, okay, there's value here. They care about informing me about my program. They care about informing me about career paths and outcomes. And this program does X, Y, Z of the things that I want to do. Now I'll choose to engage with them. Now I'll do that one-on-one -on -one meeting with, which we've seen a lot of an increase, of, especially making that virtual meeting option available. A lot of a lot of folks did that during COVID. So that's a good pivot. I think that's made admissions folks more accessible to students, which is really important. But then beyond that, um, how can you get students all of that information that are so critical? So they're now choosing to say, okay, now I'll go to a campus-based event or I'll go to a webinar. Um, so virtual sessions are really important too. I was at Roger Williams University most recently. In my experience there, we were just sending like an email invite to all of our people that are in the pipeline. And it's like, all right, come to open house. And then we might try to articulate a little bit. Some schools I've noticed in my work at DD is that a lot of um, a lot of schools just have a landing page without any information about the event. It's just like, come to open house, put your name and email and, and tell us what, you know, if you have dietary restrictions. And there's not a lot of value added information about the event itself. What am I going to do there? Who am I going to meet? What types of conversations am I going to have? So that's something that schools can really do as a very easy, quick fix is make that event page something that's engaging, make it clear. And we found that the vast majority of schools that we talked to don't do that. So that's a simple change that folks could do. But then beyond that, creating something that's engaging, like communication flows, we work on a lot with with our clients that um, when they're sending information out, create pathways to other content, engage them with other things. It's not just the ask, come to our open house, but hey, check out this guide that we developed or check out this blog on this thing related to your program or read this story about this student. So they start getting nurtured in a different way. And then they start thinking, oh, well, this sound, does sound pretty good. Let me go back to that email and register for that event. So it's not just come to the event billboard, let's go. But it's instead saying like, let's think about the various pieces that are valuable to you here. And then you say, okay, now I'll engage with that event. So it's really more of a holistic approach to it rather than just throwing an invite in front of students. Yeah, and this, this is a really helpful conversation because at, at Muhlenberg and Kitty, you and I have talked about this. We're, we're struggling to get people to come to in-person events. And so, you know, as, as a marketer and, and, and enrollment managers, we need to uh, be ensuring value for people's time, it sounds like, and, and, and even, you know, inside and out of the classroom. Um, and so that's a, a trend that I think we've all been seeing, which, which transitions into our, our next topic. How do you all see uh, graduate enrollment management and marketing shifting in, in the next five years as, you know, we're in the enrollment cliff right now, but as we get even further into that sort of demographic shift, how do you see not only the, the actual space itself changing, but the roles of graduate marketers and enrollment management professionals? And Brett, I'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing when we talk about, uh, you know, the biggest trend in that demographic cliff, you know, I, I think what it has done is kind of squarely put the focus on what we're doing on the grad level, right, on the in the grad space. And at the institutions that I've been at currently at, at Boston College, but even when I was at some of the other schools in the Boston area, that was always the case. Um, we needed to be able to have... Um, clear goals and clear expectations of what we were doing from an enrollment perspective on the grad side, because at these other institutions, we had limited capacity at the undergraduate realm. So that that um, focus on what we're doing on the grad side was always really important. And so if institutions haven't been thinking about that, they are now, and they have to kind of utilize the grad space as making up that financial gap. But I think the other kind of change and trend. And and I'm sure um, Marcus definitely agrees uh, with this, given the work that he's doing at DD Agency, is um, the use of digital tools just in general. I mean, I think that's the biggest, right? And we talked about it um, you know, previously in terms of just online coursework, but just digital tools in general to engage and connect with students um, and engage and connect with them on their time on their schedule, not necessarily ours. Uh, and that's, I think, the biggest thing and part of what um, my role is dedicated to at Boston College to help our teams kind of think through how, 
how do we use these digital tools? What's available? How can we use them to better connect with students? Um, so I think those two are the biggest trends that I see. One thing I'll just, I, while we're talking with Brett, I want to underscore how important what BC is doing is something that other schools need to be doing. Um, they hired Brett, Brett, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brett, but they hired Brett to be kind of an internal consultant. They are a decentralized model. He is in a centralized grad role, and he is the expert on digital marketing. And he is able to serve as a consultant to all those schools who in many cases may not have the staff or the resources or the expertise to do the things that he's talking about here with, with digital marketing. So when you're talking about the shifts and trends in the graduate enrollment space, and a lot of schools that have been predominantly undergraduate focused, having somebody like a Brett come in that is a graduate expert that serves as a resource as an internal consultant is a really effective and innovative way to do that. And I think a lot of schools are going to have to think very seriously about some sort of model similar to that. That's not just one person in an admissions office over in the corner campus, but instead an internal consultant that is a strategist, that's somebody that has a pulse on what's happening in the industry and can be an internal resource to make sure they move the needle forward for everybody. Thanks, Marcus. If it's cool, I'm going to go back to something that Brett said about um, meeting them in their space and not just with digital tools and marketing, but also how they want to achieve their degrees. And not all of us have that capability to make changes, but we do have a voice. Um, and so what we're seeing more and more is that people want to complete their degrees, again, on their own time. And that's starting to include more grad transfer credit hours and more micro-credentials and more certificates that blend and fold into master's degrees. And that's making their earning credentials that help them advance in the workforce and then they're folding it into a master's degree. And for us to be more flexible to that helps to bring in the students who are going to tiptoe in, right, and come in at whatever volume they want to come in um, and so they might be focusing on that degree at the time, but that's okay. We can meet them in that space and work them from there. I'm seeing an increase in graduate transfer credits because they may have picked up one course here or there for something for training for work, or they thought they were going down another path. And we've been, been a little bit more flexible in how we're um, applying it to that. We've changed some of our policies and become a little bit more flexible in that too. Um, it cuts down their time and money spent. And that's a big, big thing. I'm going to agree with everything that, that's been said, but I'm going to take a slightly different take on this because, you know, it, it, certainly the marketing and our approach to marketing, our approach to how we deliver our programs, those are absolutely critical. I think from a strategic level, um, one of the things that I'm hearing is, and we're, and we're seeing this across the country right now is that as we have in many ways, like you said, Shane, we've already kind of hit the cliff. Right. I mean, we know that it's still kind of in front of us, but essentially that that was exacerbated already by by COVID. And the issue is, is that that has put significantly more financial stressors on the graduate side of many of our campuses. And I think what we're going to see is, you know, pre-COVID, we were already at our institutions hearing a lot more about program evaluations and sunsetting programs that weren't productive and you know, developing new programs. But the graduate side of the house in many ways was protected from that. We were kind of the icing on the cake. And so nobody was looking at us through that same level of scrutiny. That is about to change. If it hasn't already changed on your campuses, it is about to change because we can no longer just assume that, hey, whatever our faculty want to teach, whatever we want to deliver, it's fine at the graduate level that those days are gone. And if they're not gone on your campus, they will be soon. I have already started to see and hear schools saying, and we're certainly doing it on our campus, looking at graduate programs going, if you're not, um, if you're not producing at a certain level, you either need to move in that direction and make some significant changes, or we are going to start needing to look at reallocating resources to programs that will produce and looking very seriously at the marketplace as we've done on the undergraduate side for years to say, if there's a niche for a graduate program 
in our, you know, in our area, in our region, demographically, geographically, we need to do that and do it sooner than later. And I, I think that is coming and it's going to be painful for a lot of graduate education professionals. Yeah, I think the word product is the one that comes to mind. And I, I, I like duck out of the way in case somebody's going to throw something at me when I say that word. But, you know, I think I think graduate, especially working professional graduate students, are, if our product is not competitive from a convenience standpoint, a price standpoint, um, a, you know, a, a value standpoint, I think it's I think it's our responsibility as marketers and enrollment management professionals to speak up to, to, to around campus to highlight that, to say that this is what our competitors are offering. And, and when we're talking about competitors, not just, um, you know, our regional competitors, brick and mortar campuses, but things like Coursera and LinkedIn Learning and HubSpot Academy and all these things that can supplement somebody's resume and get them the extra training that they need. And Keith, you're raising your hand. So I'm, well, I'm, no, I, 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 I totally in. agree with what you're saying. And you use you carefully use the word product, Shane. Um, on our campus, I've started to very cautiously use the word commodity. That graduate education in many ways has become a commodity. That if you can't deliver a product that's needed in a convenient, timely manner at a cost that's competitive versus whoever your competition is nationwide, you, you will have a difficult time being successful and I have these conversations with our CFO on campus all the time. And when I first got to AU three years ago, he didn't want to have that conversation. And now he gets it because we're starting to see more and more research coming out um, across the country using that terminology that if you if you can't be competitive in all three of those ways, then you're really going to struggle. Yeah, it truly is a, a four P's situation. If That's one right. of those price, product, place, and promotion are off, everything's out that's of whack. Right. And and I think, I think you know, to all of your points, that's going to become more and more evident as we as more and more expectations are placed on on graduate enrollment and, and marketing. I want to shift to the the student experience side of things. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, I, I want to ask specifically, how can we as as graduate professionals ensure that we're doing everything that we can, um, both pre and when students get on campus, to make sure that we're giving them the experience they're seeking, um, whether that's on campus or online, and, and how can campus leadership support those efforts? And, and Marcus, I'll start with you here. Well, I think the number one thing that schools need to do is be authentic in their marketing. I think that's the biggest problem. Um, we have the proverbial, when I started an undergraduate admission, I remember we talked about the proverbial four students under a tree and, you know, a black student, a white student, an Asian student, like that's not, that's not a way to market your schools. Being authentic school, students want to see that the experience that they were given, they were shown at the beginning is the, is the experience that we deliver on when they get there. And so if you want to have more a diverse population on campus, showing them an artificial imbalance in the marketing process, then they get there and it's like, this is not what I was promised. That's not only going to hurt that student, but it, it hurts your future efforts because students tell other students not to bother with coming to your institution. So you have to really create something authentic and drive that once students uh, get there. And that requires some synergy across students, I mean, the staff and faculty. I mean, it needs to be something that's kind of a holistic, maybe even top down, that you have somebody working on creating culture and that's very clear on what that culture is going to be. And if that's not a marketable culture, then internally you have to make some decisions on how you're going to address that. It can't just be like, oh, marketing will fix this. That's not at all what's, what's going to happen. And I even tell schools, think about just your brand voice and how you say things, the tone of the language that you use, the types of information that you share, all of those things are reflective of your brand. Um, and even things as, as simple as somebody, when somebody calls and they get, they get pinged around multiple staff members or get sent to voicemails, that's reflective of your brand. And you can't say in your marketing, we're small and personalized and we care about our students and then give them that experience on the phone. So you have to think through the entire kind of user experience, for lack of a better term. And that goes from everything from web to how they interface with your uh, staff on the phone, to email, to coming on your campus and meeting with student ambassadors, with faculty. It's hard to do, but creating an authentic experience from the very first touch point all the way through graduation is critical. 
Yeah, I agree with you um, fully, Marcus. And I, I think for me, what it comes down to is um, we talk a lot in other businesses and other experiences of having a true service-minded culture, right? And I, I think that in some ways, higher education has not necessarily embraced that term and that phrase fully. Um, I think certain components of, of campuses have, and certainly higher education institutions are, have always been and, and will continue to be student service oriented, but I think that's very different. Um, I think when we're talking about having a true service philosophy or a true service culture, I think that that means that everybody throughout the institution is thinking through and thinking about what that student's experience is, not just from an academic perspective, but from just a user experience perspective. Uh, and that's hard to do, right? I mean, there, there's not a lot of organizations in general, whether they're inside or outside of higher education, that do that really well, right? We see it in other areas. Uh, I, I'm currently at Disney World. Disney is one of those big ones um, that does it and, and has that culture. But I, I think higher education, when we're looking at it, um, there's certain areas that that um, have that mindset and there's certain areas that don't, not necessarily because they don't want to, but they just don't have the workflows in place. They don't have the resources, a, a variety of different reasons. But I think um, leaders of those institutions, of higher education institutions, that's the biggest thing that I think they could have a real impact on is if they support that, they're going to make the student experience and all of the different types of interactions that student has, not necessarily in the just in the classroom, but with every department on campus, that much better. Hey everyone, it's Mallory. I'm hosting the Engage Summit this summer in Raleigh, North Carolina. The theme of the conference is AI Got You. We're not just talking theories. This conference is your guide to understanding and applying AI at your institution. By the end, you won't just get AI. You'll be ready to lead your campus through an AI transformation. It's for everyone who wants to use AI to level up everything you're doing. Whether your focus is to recruit or retain, the Summit offers a platform to learn, network, and bring back actionable insights to enhance your student engagement strategies. I hope you'll join me and some of your favorite Enrollify creators in Raleigh on June 25th and 26th, like Jamie Hunt, Dustin Ramsdale, and Allison Tercio. Use the discount code Enrollify50, and you can register for just $99. So join us at the Engage Summit this June. Learn more and register at engage.element451.com. We can't wait to see you there. So Brett, to your point, like higher education is built upon assessment. That's what we do. We assess the academic outcomes of the product outcome every single day, but we should be assessing our internal models and functionalities at the same time. From the answering of the phone, as Marcus pointed out, down to student programming and what our product is, um, we should be constantly just reevaluating it. And it can start with flexible leadership to allow for that time in the workplace for this to take place um, and then know that there there could be changes and encourage it, right? We, we're never a set it and forget it kind of model in higher education. If we're talking about meeting the students where they are, that includes taking a moment to pause and maybe meet our staff where they are too. Um, I think that whole entire top down, like Marcus mentioned, is very important to have. One of the things that uh, I, I, I wanted to ask this group about specifically is uh, I think more and more graduate schools and, and specifically graduate professionals are being asked to supplement undergraduate enrollment uh, as we see our demographics changing. And, and I think with that comes uh, more pressure, more stress and, and you know, being, being aware of people's sort of mental health on on campus and things of that nature. So how have your institutions approached that growing importance of graduate enrollment? And and how have you as individuals dealt with some of those increased expectations? And Keith, I'll start with you. 
Yeah, you know, I think that the the biggest thing that we've done at AU is to look at our graduate recruitment team, graduate student services, and how can we resource them better? How can we um, engage them more effectively, honestly, with our undergraduate team? Because I think based on the conversation we've had here, and this is something that I don't know 10 years ago, I would not necessarily have been on this page. I was always under kind of the mindset as you think about, you know, NAGEP kind of created the GEM model, right? We did the research, we did the, you know, all the surveys and all of that. We put this, you know, this thing together that said, here are all the different models that we follow. And I think that in the last 10 years that has shifted and shifted significantly. And we are now looking at how can we more effectively integrate graduate recruitment, graduate enrollment services, graduate success with our undergraduate, because as those students, especially the traditional age students, get to our graduate programs, their expectations have changed and are much more in tune with our traditional undergraduate students. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply, obviously, to those who are in fully online programs, or you know, our older students maybe going back for some retraining or something like that. But nonetheless, I think from a large scale, we're very much looking at how these populations are essentially merging and the synergies that we can find between them and, and how we can do that effectively across all of enrollment management. The synergies are so important, Keith, but the other, th- the other side of that coin is I think institutions make the mistake of taking an undergraduate focused person and then they say, here, do the grad stuff too. And inevitably, grad is such a small sliver of their day to day that I think it makes sense if you have a dedicated staff member, of course, it depends on your your resources and student volume and that kind of thing. But let's say you have a dedicated staff member that that's their thing to work with graduate students, but maybe they're in the same office. Maybe they're in the student life office, and but they're voicing graduate concerns at the table. They bring that voice to the table. Um, I think that's the challenge, especially for smaller institutions that have so been so predominantly focused in undergrad. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying, how do we do this for grad effectively? And it can't just be a kind of side project. And what we saw, at um, Roger Williams, uh, Shane, to your question, when I left there was that they were they were putting more academic resources on graduate in addition to student life stuff. But the student life stuff was similar to what I was just talking about, that it's kind of like, how do we kind of jerry-rig this in with our current staff? Because we can't, we don't have the resources to add staff right now. So I think they'll have their challenges on that front. But on the academic side, they created kind of an associate provost role that's now in charge of graduate studies. And that person is working with the faculty to develop new graduate programs and is being held centrally responsible to not only the provost, but the board on bringing forward new graduate programs and refining some of the existing graduate education. So that's how they chose to do that. I think it's a very viable strategy as long as you're the right people in there and are given the appropriate resources and supports to do that, but have somebody that can really spearhead graduate growth. Because I'm sure everybody on the call will echo this. When you're sitting in graduate admission and you're trying to recruit and they're pushing you for more enrollment, but you have no new programs and no innovation in existing programs, you're just growing to ideally some sort of like capacity and capacity is kind of an artificial term here, but there's a kind of natural capacity that happens like, okay, we've gotten to this amount. We can't take any more students in certain programs or this program. We can't sell any more than we have because there's just not a lot of value there or distinction. So you get to that point and then you go, well, now what? So the only way it gets to grow in enrollments and revenues for that matter is to have net new programs or innovation in the existing ones, or you resource the ones that are at capacity so you can continue to grow them. And without that support at the top, it's really hard to do. As Marcus mentioned earlier, my role at at BC is looking at things from a digital strategy perspective. So we have eight graduate and professional schools at Boston College. Um, And what's interesting about my role and the team that I am part of is I think um, we as an institution have embraced looking at graduate enrollment as a a strategic part of the overall plan for the university. And one example of the fact that the university is investing in that is my role and the team that I am part of. Our team, um, graduate enrollment team, is um, a team in the provost's office 
who, uh, as as Marcus kind of said, we're we're basically internal consultants to all of the graduate and professional schools. So we work very closely with the admission teams, the marketing teams for each of the individual schools to to do exactly that, to be strategic in what we're doing in graduate enrollment management to complement and enhance the overall. Um, uh, you know, uh, status of the university. And I, I think that was a really important investment that the, the provost office made to say, we're dedicated to looking at graduate enrollment as a very necessary strategic part of our overall enrollment plan. Um, so I think that's important. And, and obviously having that support to, to be able to do that, I think shows the, the type of investment that, that BC wants to do. And then I think individually, you had asked, you know, individually, how do we deal with those uh, increased expectations is embrace it, right? I, I think that's the only thing that we can do is embrace it as gem professionals and take that on uh, head on. Uh, and I think that that's been um, my strategy just kind of individually when I'm having conversations with the admission teams and the marketing teams and having those difficult conversations like um, Kitty and Marcus and Keith were saying in terms of program evaluation, what's what's new down the pike? This isn't, you know, this program is really struggling. Is there, is that because the demand is not there? Having those difficult conversations and having it dedicated on the graduate side, I think, um, you know, just embracing that I think is really important. And, and Kitty at Kutztown, you and I have talked about this in the past, but talk a little bit about some of the changes that you've seen from an, I don't want to say important standpoint, but a priority standpoint when it comes to graduate enrollment at, at Kutztown. So back to program innovation, we have in one niche area that is cross-pashy that we're the only school that's doing this. So we're going to be able to get that market share. Um, it's online how they produced it is going to be pretty effective. And since it's certificate model, it's going to be a little bit less expensive. So thankfully, we're having some conversations to put that effort behind it. Um, the faculty are on board, the deans are in support, provost office, right? It's going all the way up. One of the biggest changes that I've seen since I've been here, I've been here for about three and a half years, is that um, administration has finally decided to establish a graduate marketing budget, which it makes everybody laugh. I'm sure I was listening to this, um, but it hasn't been done in about 25 years that graduate had a specific marketing line. And that is a big deal, but we've been able to take some special one-time funds to put behind new programs and effectively show the outcomes. Um, and so they got behind that build and that really helps us embrace. You're going to have a strategic plan to help us grow. Then it really helpful to know that you're supporting it financially. Um, and then eventually my office will be kind of restructured and growing as well. So we're going to come on that, but we've seen the foundation that our volume is increasing. And so the administration has recognized that too. And we're going to be able to make some changes with our structure. That's great. That's great on the, on the budget side of things. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I think if there are folks listening to this that are not in the day-to-day -day of graduate marketing and enrollment management, it, it might be a little bit difficult to, to realize how different the student journey is um, among graduate and undergraduate populations. So for the group, you know, what are some of the biggest differences in, in what you see uh, when, you're, when you're talking with graduate students, specifically about some of the value propositions that might be different from from undergraduate populations, and and Brad, I'll start with you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the biggest thing is is you know grad students, and I would actually include adult undergrad, you know, non traditional um, adult undergraduate students as well. It's all about what their journey is, what their timeline is, right? I, I think that's one of the biggest things is. Um, so much of what we do in enrollment management is looking at the next cycle, right? Like the next term, we got to get meet the enrollment goal for that next term. Um, but our students don't work that way. You know, I mean, some may and some might have that timeline that is more 
sooner rather than later. Um, but we know that life gets in the way. And so um, that's really difficult to do. But I think that's an important distinction uh, of what those students experience versus kind of what you get at the undergraduate level. Um, I think also the other thing is that um, it's really important to understand and be developing a long-term relationship with those students because of that. Um, if they're working on their own timeline, you need to build things so that from the first moment you interact with them to whenever they make that decision to apply and, and get admitted and enroll, um, you, you have to be constantly building that relationship. Uh, and so it's, it's balancing making those short-term types of activities um, to, to get the students that are interested in doing things sooner rather than later, but then also building in that engagement and those connections so that whenever they are ready, that you're there and, you, and they know that you're ready to assist them. To jump on what Brett's saying, I mean, we've seen that our adult and graduate student population could take six days, six weeks, 18 months to make their decision to keep them engaged is super important throughout that. And then helping them to onboard. Um, they Sure, they've come through another program before, but that school operated differently. Um, it's been a while. They don't know our system compared to the other system. So having all those tools and then be flexible. If they need to defer, work with them. They need to defer because something has come up in their home life um, that their employer isn't going to reimburse all the way through. And some schools might not have a good deferment policy in place or even just an actual procedure in place as to what that could look like. So trying to find that flexibility can really help that student population. Keith, what were you going to pop in with? Yeah, and Kitty, I think you're exactly right. I think you're right on the money here. And the only thing I was going to say is that what I perceive now that I oversee undergraduate and graduate enrollment in my current role, that one of the primary differences is that a significant percentage of your um, incoming undergraduates don't know what they want to do and they don't know why they want to do it. On the graduate side, at least you have purpose, right? You usually have um, an understanding of what it is they want to pursue and why they want to pursue it. But to your point, Kitty, that doesn't mean that they need any less handholding. That doesn't mean that they need any uh, less of our focus and attention to help them to be successful. So, you know, even though there are differences, I think, and we've said this a lot in the last hour or so, that the idea of student success and how we help our students to achieve that, that, that is not any different. That's, that's becoming more and more important on the graduate side as we move forward. And, you know, Keith's getting at to where grad students have maybe a sense of purpose or a more specific vision, graduate programs have to be marketed as a program level marketing approach, not come to X university, but instead say, we've got this PhD, we've got this master's, it does this thing. Students generally, they, they may not know brands, but many graduate students, regardless of age, typically have some idea of what they want to do. I want to become a physical therapist. I want to go into business. I want to become an accountant. I want to become a doctor. Like those things are very clear, but then they're going, well, how do I do that? What degree do I need to do that? So they're trying to answer these questions and obviously schools have to try to do that, but your marketing approach has to be very focused on the program and the distinctive things that you offer and the value of that in terms of the student's future. The other thing that I think schools that are new, let's call it, to graduate enrollment and marketing is then they need to think of it's not just one audience anymore. Um, and I'm not, and I know it's not fair to group the undergrads necessarily, but the majority of full-time day undergrad folks are typically 16, 17, 18 years old when they're searching and coming from a traditional high school model. Now that's that's negating transfers and non-traditional and veterans and all that stuff. But in general, that's a fairly prescriptive audience. With grad, you've got what Keith was talking about, the traditional age coming out of 21, 22, maybe four plus one type student. Maybe they need the degree for what they wanna do. Like they can't just stop at a bachelor's, they need a master's at minimum, let's say to be a mental health counselor or a social worker. But then you got people that have to go into doctoral programs. Then you got others that are like, man, what I did in undergrad wasn't all that focused. Like I was a communication major. We always joke, comm majors and psych majors just join those programs because they don't know what else to do because <laughs> they can do anything with those degrees. Um, 
but and I don't mean to throw shade because I'm a communication major. But um, as you finish those programs, you might go, well, this wasn't what I wanted. And then they go, well, I need to go do something else. So they're pivoting as a 22 year old and saying, I need this program to go open that door. And I saw that mental health counseling all the time where you had students that were kind of doing a lot of different things undergrad and then like, OK, I found this. I'd rather do that instead. So they have a completely different undergrad. Then you've got adults that are pivoting from their work. Some want to get a promotion and they just want to get the letters after their name because that allows them to get the next rung on the ladder. Some people are doing it for personal enrichment. So I think what's scary the most about graduate that undergraduate predominant institutions have to understand is grad is not a one size fits all. It's very much like, OK, here's this program. I need to market this program. Then within that program, I have two, three, four, five different audiences and they may be searching different. They may be on different channels. They need to hear different messages. And their sensitivity, as we're talking about with the other panelists here, about how graduate students maybe are more sensitive about course delivery and scheduling and whether it's online or on campus, um, how much ex how expensive it is. Can I get something on the way like a certificate like Kitty was talking about versus just diving into a master's? There's a lot more variables there that I think make it really scary for schools that aren't familiar with this, but they have to embrace that part of the process. You can't just go and say, I'm going to market my school and put this message out there and hope that students show up. It's not going to work. Yeah, all, all really good insights, and, and I appreciate all of it. So as we, we wrap up here, we've been doing this with all of our, our guests, and, and we're definitely going to come back and look at them in three to four years, so pressure is on. Um, but I want to know from each of you, what are your predictions for the next three or four years in the graduate space? And I'm just going to go in order of my screen here, so Kitty, you're on the spot first, and then we'll go Brett, Marcus, and Keith. I feel like I've said this four times already, but I think that the quick and short is going to be, it's something that we've already been talking about in this space, but I think it really will grow in the next three to four years that um, you're, we're going to see schools offering stackable certificates and it's going to be a thing and it's not a bad thing. These are courses that are already in existence. It's just a matter of how you're going to deliver them. I think there's three things that I'm looking at. I think, um, a continued increased student expectation that there's going to be transparent ROI information for your, for that program or that degree. Um, I think students are going to want increased access to either current students, alumni, faculty members, um, because, you know, as Marcus said earlier, um, the information is out there. They're doing their searching a lot, I think, preemptively. And so being able to give them access to uh, talk to people who are experiencing it, I think allows them to envision themselves in that program. So I think that's going to be important. And then thirdly, I just think there's going to be an increased expectation from students that there's going to be better and more volume of high quality engagement opportunities um, through digital tools, in-person tools, everything. Brett touched on it. I think AI is going to be one of the biggest changes that we're going to have to face for better or worse. Um, and there's going to be a lot of new tools that are leveraging AI and how students use that. I think it's going to be it's going to evolve over time. But certainly we're going to see even the traditional search engines are going to be evolving into a much more. I mean, Google's already doing it, um, shifting their AI approach and students getting answers independent of us and then trying to figure out, OK, that chat GPT or any GPT that for that matter is sourcing its information from somewhere. How can we make sure that that source, namely our website in particular, is so information rich, but also accurate, so that those GPTs are giving accurate information? Because they're probably not gonna be talking to us. They're not gonna be calling the admissions counselors. There's a lot of communication apprehension. They're gonna be using chatbots more. And I think the proliferation of chatbots is coming too. The other pivot I think that we're gonna see, especially with grad folks, and I've struggled this with, with this with staff, over time is that people are like, I got into this work because I want to work with students. It's altruistic. I want to help people realize their dreams, go into education and get a great job and outcomes and all that stuff. And we're all still doing that. But at the same time, what we're realizing is institutions can't sit on their laurels and just say like, oh, we're doing this wonderful thing. People will come. It's not feel the dreams. We need to have a business mind. And I think part of that's going to be training for gem folks. There's gem folks are going to start thinking more about net tuition revenue and aid modeling a little bit differently. We can't just have admissions in a silo anymore. Graduate enrollment, as we talked about, is a much more holistic thing. But we're going to have to be willing to have conversations that are more rooted in business-like things. You guys were talking about product before. I'll throw sales in there, too, as an ugly word. Things that people in admissions and enrollment traditionally don't want to talk about. But if you want to grow in the field, have actual results and actually improve you know, professionally, 
you're going to have to take a little bit more of a business sense approach, but find that happy medium. And that I think will be kind of the big question for gem folks going forward is where can I find the middle where we're still really doing altruistic good things. We're aligning students with right fit schools. We're really making a positive impact on society, but also doing it in a way that keeps the doors open, allows us to grow effectively, invest in additional programs and have the resources we need to do it. Well, Shane, it's difficult for me to follow, you know, these three have come up with so many different predictions. I'm not sure where else to go. I think the one word that comes to mind for me that kind of wraps and maybe sums all of this up is innovation. That on the gem side, if, if we choose to innovate, then we are choosing to move forward in all of these ways, program development, technology, all these different things. The schools that don't choose to innovate um, here over the next three to four years may be choosing to shut their doors eventually, because I, I, I don't think that you can stay where you're at in the gem space right now or in the graduate education space. Uh, you can't stay where you are and expect to, to survive or thrive. It, it's going to require innovation. Yeah, all, all really good predictions. I, I would say uh, that my biggest thing I'm watching, in addition to AI, would be kind of what you touched on, Kitty, and, and how do we compete with not only our, our colleagues across the higher ed industry, but how do we compete with um, product offerings like Coursera, LinkedIn Learning, really kind of convenient, quick options for people that are looking for that transactional uh, sort of credential that can add to their, their resume. So looking forward to revisiting all these predictions in a couple of years with you all. But um, Kitty, Marcus, Brad, and Keith, thanks so much for joining me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I hope our listeners did too. Uh, on behalf of all the good folks at Enrollify, thank you all for joining me for a guide to graduate marketing in 2024. I sincerely hope that we gave you some resources to further your work, connect with colleagues, and promote the importance of support for graduate enrollment management and marketing on your campus. I'm Shane Baglini. Thank you so much for being with me. The Higher Ed Pulse is part of the Enrollify Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, enrollment, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks, all designed to empower you to be a better higher ed professional. Our show helps higher ed marketers and admission pros find their next big idea and features a selection of the industry's best as your hosts. Learn from Brian Gross, Eddie Francis, Jenny Lee Fowler, and so many of your favorite leaders in higher ed. Enrollify is made possible by Element 451, the next generation AI student engagement platform, helping institutions create meaningful and personalized interactions with students. Learn more at element451.com.